Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about the life of Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. We tend to focus on the Russian communists rather than the Chinese communists in Europe. Hopefully my talk will reposition China in Mao Zedong's time and in fact today. Mao Zedong's portrait still hangs in Tiananmen Square, showing he's still revered as much today as the man that created modern China. And he made a meal of it. When I compare him to Ataturk, the Turkish revolutionary who created the country, he does seem to have made much more of a meal than Ataturk did. And hopefully we can remember Andrew's wonderful talk where he invited us to consider the concept of a revolution. And that was in the context of William III replacing his father-in-law, James II. And we had this discussion about whether or not there had been a revolution or not. And if they had, what sort? And Andrew gave us five choices to consider. So we've talked about revolution. There's another term that's worth dwelling on before we get started, and that is the verb to purge. Leaders in both Britain and China purge their organisations of people that are not loyal to them. In Britain, despite what we might think about the state of British politics, purging is a relatively genteel affair. Ministers become backbenchers, and backbenchers have their wit removed. And from here, the purge are able to criticise and in general create a lot of mischief. But throughout the 2000 years of the Chinese state, purges have been much more final. If you're disloyal, you, your family and friends would either be killed outright or so humiliated that you commit suicide. And Mao continued this tradition. So in this talk, I'll endeavour to explore Mao the person as well as Mao the leader. And I split the talk into two halves, which is, I think, always the best number of halves to have. First, the time before Mao achieved any position of power, what was China like and what events shaped his early life. And then his time as a ruler, first of all at Jiangxi Soviet and then as Premier of the People's Republic of China. China's current economic success doesn't really owe its legacy to Mao, but much more to Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping. But the cultural and political legacy definitely comes from Mao. And for source material, there's three genres of Mao biographies that you can find. There are the officially endorsed biographies that seek to portray Mao as a great man. They dwell on what he achieved for China and avoid his atrocities. The Communist Party has no interest in any revisionist histories, and archives about Mao are only accessible to the very highest levels of the Communist Party. The second genre is best typified by what is perhaps the most well-known biography of Mao in the West, Jung Chang and John Hyde's book, Mao, The Unknown Story. This is written by people whose relatives were destroyed by Mao and they are totally hostile towards Mao. In Jung Chang's biography, she fails to find any single item at all positive about him. And in their view, Mao was an evil psychopath. He had no humanity and they have been exceedingly selective in their sources and extensively used quotes out of context. The third genre is those biographies that try and give a balanced view, highlighting Mao's successes as well as his failures. 
and I selected Mao the Man Who Made China by Philip Short as the best representative of this genre, and that's the source I've most relied on in preparing this talk. Philip Short was for 30 years foreign correspondent for the BBC, and he lived and worked in China throughout the 70s and 80s. And there's also quite a few podcasts that I found useful. For example, the BBC have got a good series on the Cultural Revolution. So Mao's life spans from 1893, when William Gladstone was Prime Minister, that sounds an awful long time ago, all the way through to the resignation of Harold Wilson in 1976, which sounds almost like yesterday. Some Chinese world affairs that directly impacted on Mao, including Lenin's founding of the Soviet autocracy, the Chinese Civil War and the Korean War. And yes, we will touch on Nixon as well. Now, since I'm trying to present a balanced view, there is a danger that might leave you with the impression that Mao was a jolly good chap. So let me say up front, he was a tyrant, a despot, he was frequently cruel, and he certainly didn't value any human life apart from his own. Deng Xiaoping, who followed Mao and translated Mao's vision for a strong, powerful China into a practical reality, said Mao was 70% good and 30% bad. More recent Chinese leaders prefer not to discuss his legacy. So first then, let's set the scene on what China was like before Mao. The last dynasty to be ruled by the Han Chinese people was the Ming Dynasty, which came to an end in 1664, when the Han were conquered by the Manchurians. The Manchurians established the initially highly successful Qing Dynasty, and the Manchu were not Han, they did not speak Chinese. And the Qing conquered Tibet, Mongolia, and East Turkestan, which we know of as Xinjiang province. These territories, together with the Manchu territories of Inner Mongolia and Manchuria, created Imperial Greater China. So in the 17th and 18th centuries, China was an imperialistic power, and it created an empire. Now the Chinese today, and Mao in his day, positioned China as non-imperialistic and anti-imperialism, and the Chinese communists argue that they have never interfered in the internal affairs of other countries, unlike the USA and the European countries. And we'll touch on this again at the end of the talk. In China, there's been two schools of political theory that have shaped and continue to shape the thinking of Chinese leaders. First is Confucianism, which can be summarised as leaders should focus on encouraging people to do good. Education, diplomacy, justice and respect for hierarchy are key characteristics of Confucian thought. Second, and probably more dominant, is Chinese legalism, which was defined and documented in the 4th century before Common Era so a long time ago. And legalism can be summarised as leaders should focus on punishing people who do harm, particularly people who question the authority of the leader. Nice and simple. In legalist thinking, there is no such thing as human rights. Staying in power by any means is the key priority. It's more important than truth, justice and liberty. And there's no doubt about it, Xi Jinping is a legalist. Another recurring theme throughout Chinese history has been famines. Wars, poor harvests, profiting rulers and landowners all frequently caused food shortages and widespread deaths. Millions died. Mothers were often forced to sell their children rather than let them starve. And in the 18th and 19th century, Europe, America and Japan exploited technological advances arising from the Industrial Revolution to create powerful, wealthy states but the Qing failed to modernise and remained an agricultural economy. In the 1840s, Britain, using its advanced military strength, forced China to take opium in return for porcelains, silk and tea. We were not alone. The French and Americans were part of the same trade. 
So moving on to around the year 1905, Mao Zedong was born in a small village in Hunan province, roughly central China. Such was the weakness of China that Qing had been forced to concede many territories, Kowloon and Hong Kong to Britain, Korea and Taiwan to Japan, Northeast China and Manchuria to Russia, whilst both France and Germany controlled many of the coastal ports. This was part of what China calls its century of humiliation, caused by imperialistic powers. China today is very sensitive to outside interference due to the way they were mistreated last time foreigners had a say in running their country. In 1887, the Yellow River flood was the most devastating flood known to mankind, killing around 1 million people and covering around 50,000 square miles. That's roughly the size of England. The spiritual contract Chinese citizens had with their emperor is that God put the emperor on the throne and the emperor rules under something called the mandate of heaven. If the emperor fails to ensure his people are kept safe and fed, then he loses that mandate and may be justly overthrown. So is it a revolution if the emperor has lost the mandate of heaven? This then was the world that Mao was born into. So Mao was born in a small village called Shoashan, around 50 miles from the Hunan state capital of Changsha. The farmhouse was destroyed by the nationalists in 1929 and was rebuilt in 1950 and opened as a museum. According to TripAdvisor, the top five things to do in Shoashan are number one, Mao Zedong's former residence. Number two, Mao Zedong's Memorial Museum. Number three, Mao Zedong's Bronze Statue Square. Number four, Bronze Statue of Mao Zedong. And if you're looking for something different, number five, the tomb of Mao Zedong's parents. The year after Mao was born, Japan, recognizing how weak China was, declared war. The war ended when China recognized Korea as an independent country, ceding Taiwan, and parts of mainland China to Japan, and paid Japan 8,000 metric tons of silver. The result of the war was increased xenophobia amongst the Chinese and increasing insurrections against the corrupt and weak Qing government. When Mao was about 15, this xenophobia triggered the rise of a group called the Militia United in Righteousness, known as the Boxers in English, because of their fondness for Chinese martial arts, known as Chinese boxing in English. The group attacked foreigners and anything foreign-owned. Christians were particularly targeted and around 32,000 Chinese Christians and 200 Western missionaries were killed. 20,000 soldiers from eight Western nations in Japan put down the rebellion. They got the ringleaders executed and demanded $10 billion in reparations. And the Western nations plundered Beijing. Some of the most impressive exhibits in the China Gallery of the V&A come from the sacking of the royal palace. There was also much raping of Chinese women and girls by Western soldiers. And as an indication of the brutality of both the Western and the Qing troops, many of the rebels were killed slowly by being suspended by the neck until they suffocated. Many groups were formed in the aftermath of the retribution following the Boxer <coughs> uprisings. Some sought to reform the Qing dynasty, but many sought to overthrow it and the group that was ultimately successful in bringing an end to the Qing dynasty was led by Sun Yat-sen, and in 1912 he formed the government of the Republic of China. Sun Yat-sen was particularly adept at courting foreign governments for support, particularly the Americans. Sun Yat-sen's party is known as the Nationalists, and the Nationalists only controlled a small part of southern and central China. Independent, violent warlords ran the rest of China. 
So Mao was brought up with natural disasters, civil war, occupation by foreign powers, and a society subject to horrendous brutality. His father also beat him. Mao learned that when he was weak and submissive, he got beaten even more. When he strongly rebelled against his father, his father relented. These were life lessons. Mao's father came from a long line of poor peasant farmers, but Mao's father had more of a business mind than many of his forebears and peers, and through hard work and thrift, he became one of the more wealthy poor peasant farmers. He produced enough food to feed his family and to produce a small surplus, which he sold in the city where it fetched a much higher price rather than selling it to a local community. And over time, he became a money lender, amassed 20 acres of land, and sometimes employed farm workers. So, was he a peasant farmer, one of the proletariat, or was he one of the landed owning classes, part of the bourgeoisie, the middle class? It depends where you draw the line, a decision Mao would have to make later on. Mao's father could afford to send Mao to the local school. School comprised learning Chinese classic texts by rote and being beaten when you forgot a piece. When Mao was 13, his father demanded he give up school to work on the farm. Mao rebelled. At the age of 14, his father arranged for Mao to marry. Mao rebelled. However, the marriage had already been agreed and contracted for, and Mao was forced into it. He ran away from home after the marriage and never consummated it. His wife died from dysentery two years later. And in later life, Mao legislated a ban on forced marriages. Mao managed to get a place in the middle school, and despite his pig-headedness and argumentative nature, he did well, particularly literature, history, and poetry. Mao went to secondary school in Hunan's capital city of Changsha. Mao decided, like thousands of others, to join a revolutionary army. Most of the soldiers were illiterate, and he became popular writing letters home for the soldiers. He enjoyed his intellectual status and tried to distance himself from the manual labour that soldiers were required to do, like fetching water. Around the age of 18, Mao left the army and enrolled on a teacher training course. It required no fees and came with cheap board and lodging. He devoured books, especially on the great men of the world. He learned about George Washington, William Gladstone, Napoleon Bonaparte, Abraham Lincoln and Peter the Great in Russia. He read Western books on political rule, including Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and he learned about liberalism from John Stuart Mill. Charles Darwin's thesis of survival of the fittest gave Mao an added reason why China needed to modernise. He read translations of Rousseau's The Social Contract and Montesquieu's The Spirit of Law about the concepts of sovereignty, and he read the English philosopher Herbert Spencer and the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Here is one diary entry. In the early morning, I study English from 8 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. From 4 in the afternoon until dinner, I attend class. I study Chinese literature from the time the lights are lit until they are extinguished, I do homework. And after the lights are extinguished, I exercise for one hour. And here's another quote, this time on the flux of history and his prediction for a Second World War. Thus, the invasion of France by the Holy Alliance in 1790 contained within it the seeds of Napoleon's rise. Napoleon's subjugation of 1815 created the conditions for the French defeat of 1870, which in turn paved the way for Germany's defeat in 1918. Nor would it end there. The harshness of the conditions imposed by the Allies at Versailles made another cycle of conflict inevitable. I guarantee, Mao wrote, but in 10 or 20 years, you Frenchmen will yet again have a splitting headache. 
mark my words. Mao developed his philosophy, which combined the Western concept of individual self-interest with the Chinese Confucianist concept of service to the ruler, to realize that, in Mao's words, great and powerful men are representatives of an era, and the whole era is but an accessory to those people. In other words, the authoritarian's charter, only Mao's self-interest, mattered. The path to a nationalist government was not peaceful. The period is often called the warlord era, with powerful local independent rulers running their piece in China as they saw fit. Mao saw firsthand civil war, mass murders and tortures as rulers fought to stay in power. In Mao's state alone, we have Governor Tang. He earned the sobriquet Butcher Tang. He was only in power for three years, but he killed around 10,000 civilians. Governor Zhang, sobriquet Zhang the Venomous, was a cruel and sadistic dictator who killed and tortured people, killed cattle and destroyed crops. The only way to get food was to inform on your friends. And there was another governor. His nickname was the Living King of Hell. And spies were everywhere. At the age of 23, Mao was voted Student of the Year and Head of the Student Society. His articles for the national paper, The New Youth, were the first to be published by a student from Hunan. As part of the college's outreach programme, he organised evening education classes for local workers, most of whom had had no education. When Mao received his teaching diploma, he got a job in Beijing as a university librarian. But his provincial manners and dialect and his lack of family status meant he was humiliated by those in power and authority. 1914-18 was, of course, the period of the First World War. Two events were to have a significant impact on the evolution of China. First, during this period, Lenin led the Bolsheviks to establish the Russian Soviet Republic, a communist state, and second, the Treaty of Versailles. During the First World War, the province of Shandong in China had been run by Germany. And Shandong wasn't just any old province, it was the heartland of Chinese identity, the birthplace of the Chinese nation. Confucius was born and lived there, and it was the spiritual home of Taoism. China had supported the Allies by declaring war on Germany and provided the British Army with 140,000 labourers. So China, as one of the victors, quite reasonably expected the province of Shandong would be returned to China. Instead, Britain and France gave Shandong to Japan. Chinese intellectuals felt betrayed. China had trusted the West, and that trust had been broken. I mean, apart from the Opium Wars, the Centre of Humiliation, the $10 billion reparations for the Boxer Uprising, the sacking of the Beijing Palace and the gifting of the Han heartlands to Japan, what cause are the Chinese not to trust us? <laughs> With rising Chinese nationalism, an anti-imperialist culture and political movement called the May the Fourth Movement arose to protest against the government's weak response to the Versailles Treaty. Chinese communism arose out of the May the Fourth Movement. 1920 was a big year for Mao. First he became a communist, and next he got a well-paid job as principal of a primary school in Changsha, which meant for the first time in his life he had more money than he needed to survive. And third, he married Yang Kui Wei, the daughter of his ethics professor. Mao set about getting a fairer deal for exploited workers who tried to create industrial unions and improve factory conditions, which were appalling, worse than Dickensian. For example, at one Beijing match factory, the workers, many just children between the ages of 9 and 15, worked from 4am to 6.30pm, seven days a week, with just a few minutes off for breaks. 
Of the 1,100 workers, around 80 became seriously ill each week and could no longer work. Such was the level of poverty in the countryside, there was never a shortage of replacement workers. And the success of the Russian Communist Party led to the formation in 1921 of the Communist Party of China. And although Mao was at the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, he played a minor role. He was not a founding member and not part of the policy-setting Central Committee. Compared to others at the first Congress, Mao lacked an understanding of Marxism, did not speak Russian or English, and had provincial ways. The philosophy that most appealed to the young intellectuals of Mao's generation was anarchism, government by local communes called Soviets. This was a revolt against the strict hierarchical control of the Confucian family system. Mao thought Confucianism is what was holding China back and the philosophy had to go. Lenin set up a communist international called the Comintern, a political tool enabling him to control and shape the activities of foreign communist parties. He treated them as branches of his own communist party, and the Comintern's goal was to establish the overthrow, by military means if necessary, of all bourgeoisie, i.e. middle class society, throughout the world, and establish world communism with, of course, Moscow as the supreme power. Much of the early groundwork in establishing the Chinese Communist Party goes to the charming and diplomatic Russian Jew Grigory Voitinsky, whose persuasive charms converted Chinese enthusiasm for anarchism to enthusiasm for Marxism and Leninism. The Comintern representative who actually facilitated the first Chinese Communist Party meeting was a much more abrasive and arrogant person, a Dutchman, called Henk Snevelet. He, like all Comintern representatives, brought money from Moscow. Thus, right from the beginning, the Chinese had a love-hate relationship with the Comintern. The Comintern provided money and expertise, but did not have Chinese interests at heart. Lenin recognised that the real power in China lay then with the nationalists, so he pressurised the communists to go into coalition with the nationalists with the aim of converting the nationalists to communism. Mao, with his poor grasp of foreign languages, was very much on the periphery of these first meetings. When Mao returned to Changsha, he again tried to learn English but he was much more successful at recruiting new communist members. Mao got the job of setting up the Hunan branch of the Chinese Communist Party, and Mao was one of the most successful branch leaders in recruiting members. For Mao, he focused on the Anyuan coal mine, where working conditions were appalling, with gas explosions and back lung disease killing many miners each year. The mine workers initially had some success. The mine owners were refusing to pay the workers back pay that they were owed. Through Mao's school at the mine, the miners were encouraged to strike. They were successful in getting a pay rise, union recognition, improved holidays, and an end to the practice where middle-ranking managers creamed off part of the miners' salary for themselves. Mao also took on the role of chief negotiator for the Changsha and city construction workers, and through a peaceful, well-argued case, won the workers' rights to negotiate pay and conditions with their employers. They were successful in getting an immediate 50% pay rise which, as one Christian missionary noted, was still barely a living wage for a family man. Other workers organised themselves with Mao's support into unions. The garment makers, the typesetters, the barbers, the rickshaw pullers, dyers and weavers. Mao became the general secretary of the Hunan Federation of Labour Organisations. There were setbacks. At a mill, the workers were denied their agreed annual bonus and a riot broke out. The mill owner called for help from the military governor and got the men back to work by using machine guns. Three workers were killed. 
Two officials from Mao's organisation who helped negotiate the agreement were beheaded. By the end of 1942, Mao had made a real difference to workers' rights in Hunan and was now a prominent person. However, another warlord, Wu Pifu, came to power and started beheading Yudin officials. Mao fled to Shanghai, where the Communist Party General Secretary, impressed with what Mao had achieved in Hunan, offered him a job on the Central Committee. Mao chose not to attend the Chinese Communist Party's Second Congress, fearing that it would bow to Russian pressure and agree to work with the nationalists. Mao's insight was correct. The party did vote for an alliance. One of Mao's skills was knowing when not to be around. However, Mao the pragmatist chose to work with the nationalists and try and get them to adopt his ideas on labour and land reform. He was still convinced that the privileged in society, the bourgeoisie, would never willingly share their comfortable lifestyle. And at the third Congress, Mao was elected to the nine-man Central Committee in charge of personnel. In August 1925, a drought was causing a famine in Mao's village. The peasants petitioned for the local granaries to be opened, but the villagers were told that the rice would fetch a higher price in Changzhou and none was released. The village authorities were threatened with hose and bamboo poles and the landlords were forced to sell their rice to the peasants. A tiny victory, but within days all over Hunan the scene was repeated. The military governor for Hunan ordered the immediate arrest and execution of Mao Zedong. Mao, at the age of 31, was now an outlaw in his home state, and apart from championing social welfare reform, he had done nothing criminal or amoral. And at the age of 31, Mao had all the makings of a Clement Attlee rather than a Stalin. Shanghai, where Mao now moved to, was the most famous of the 80 foreign-controlled treaty ports that were a feature of China at this time. These were self-governing areas that provided all you needed for a comfortable expat life. Restaurants, churches, parks, and their own police force and judiciary. Indeed, these treaty ports were not subject to Chinese law. The ports bore inward Western investments such as the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, shipbuilding, railways and modern manufacturing. Shanghai in the 1920s was a place that attracted the entrepreneur, especially those that thrived without rules. Aldous Huxley said, nothing more intensely living can be imagined. And there were many stories about quite what Wallace Simpson, the future wife of King Edward VIII, learnt and did in her two years in Shanghai and China. Many Chinese businessmen prospered as they acted as the interface between these Western enclaves and the poor Chinese workers. If you wanted to see the best and the worst of imperialism and capitalism, the treaty ports laid it all before you. These successful Chinese businessmen poured millions of dollars into the Nationalist Party to ensure their continued business success, and these businessmen were not happy about the communists championing workers' rights. By the end of 1925, Chiang Kai-shek was second in command in the Nationalist Party and was the commander of the Nationalist Army. He instigated a military coup. Chiang Kai-shek was keen to reunite China, so he sent his armies to subdue the local warlords, and they had much success and soon gained control of most of central and southern China. As Chiang Kai-shek's forces advanced on Nanjing, his armies looted the American, British and Japanese consulates and fired on foreigners, killing, amongst others, two Britons and an American, and wounding the British consul. More widespread looting by the Chinese followed. Britain had ten warships nearby, and America had five, and in retaliation they pounded Nanjing with artillery shells. The whole incident was over in a couple of days, with Chiang Kai-shek's generals restoring law and order. 
Chiang Kai-shek was no fan of all the foreign control of China, but he blamed the incident on the communists. With his military success, with pressure and money from the Chinese capitalists, and with the Nanjing incident fresh in his mind, in the April of 1927, Chiang Kai-shek decided to get rid of all the communists. Hundreds of thousands of communists were killed, a period known as the White Terror. The Communist Party was all but destroyed and had to set about rebuilding itself. Mao was sent to Hunan as Communist Secretary for Hunan in order to rebuild party infrastructure and membership. He was also appointed by the Communist Central Bureau with running the Peasant Movement Committee, and he was hugely successful. Mao's report on investigation on the peasant movement in Hunan was a most thorough piece of work based on extensive field research through conferences and interviews. In it, he attacked both feudalism and the patriarchal society. However, his report was not liked, and in the next meeting of the Communist Party's Central Bureau, he was demoted. At the age of 34, one could still argue Mao was an exemplary revolutionary. He had worked with prevailing nationalist government to rebuild the country, but the purge of communists reinforced in his mind that better conditions for the poor were not going to come about with the nationalists in charge. China in the first half of the 20th century was predominantly agrarian economy, so in terms of power, it was all about land ownership. The Nationalist Party wanted land owned by the existing rich bourgeoisie to continue, representing their own self-interest. In the Communist Party, there was continuing debate over many years as to the split between public and private ownership of land. Should a farmer and his family be able to own enough land to feed themselves and produce a small surplus, say five acres? Or should a small village be able to work together on, say, a hundred acres? Or should all land be owned by the state? No one could agree what was the right way forward. Mao argued for public ownership of land, but for the time being, his views were too radical for the communist leadership. And the leadership felt that the peasants by themselves should create a revolution. Mao disagreed, knowing that the nationalist armed forces would quell any peasant revolt. Up to now, the communists had worked with the nationalists and apart from seeking better rights for workers, had done nothing revolutionary. The communist leadership planned against Mao's advice an uprising called the Autumn Harvest Uprising. To give you a feel for the scale of their resources, they had only about 3,000 troops. This made up what would become the Red Army. Because the revolution was to start in Hunan, Mao was given political leadership. Overnight, on September 8, 1927, the communist military men discarded the nationalist flag under which Spanner had been fighting and adopted the red flag of the Chinese Workers' and Peasants' Party. The insurrection had started. It was a disaster. Over the next eight days, half the insurrectionists were killed and Mao captured, only just managing to escape. And Chinese political culture then demanded that those blamed for the failed insurrection should be punished, and Mao was expelled from the Politburo. And of course, retribution came from the nationalists, killing about 300,000 Hunanese peasants and communists. Mao and what remained of his troops fled to the relative safety of the Jingang Mountains dividing Hunan from Jiangxi. As party secretary for the Hunan communists, Mao was in overall political charge and he sought to rebuild his troops. Mao knew that most of the recruits would come from the peasantry, and since the whole point of the revolution was to improve the lot of peasants, he instigated some radical policies. For the soldiers, he was to be an all-volunteer army. There was to be no compulsion. Anyone was to free to leave at any time. The soldiers were to be treated with respect. Officers were forbidden to beat them. Soldiers' committees were set up to handle grievances. For the local people that the soldiers interacted with, the civilians were to be treated with respect, spoken to politely, 
and the soldiers were to pay a fair price for what they bought, and nothing was to be stolen. These were revolutionary policies and created a lot of loyalty. The strength of Mao's mountain bases was that they were easy to defend with just a few men. Their weakness was that all supplies, especially food, had to be carried mostly on men's backs up the mountains from the villages below. Mao's forces, using guerrilla tactics, would successfully attack small groups of nationalist forces and for a time free the villages from nationalist control. Here they would take land from the rich landlords and redistribute it to the poor peasants. The nationalists, meanwhile, were throwing more and more soldiers into encirclement campaigns to eradicate cells of communist fighters. Gradually, during 1927-28, many of the remaining communist fighters linked up with Mao and his forces. Mao's tactics were criticised by some in the Communist Party leadership, such as Zhou Enlai, who felt Mao was relying too much on trained soldiers and should instead just urge the peasants to rise up. Mao was criticised for, and I quote, not killing and burning enough and for not carrying out the policy of turning the petty bourgeoisie into the proletarians and then forcing them to make a revolution. And Zhou Enlai tried to replace Mao as Hunan Party Secretary. So up to this point, with Mao in his mid-30s, he seems to be an exemplary revolutionary, but he hasn't yet tasted real power. So we left Mao in 1929 in his Jiangyang mountain base. And this base came under increasing attack from the nationalists, and Mao was ordered by the communist leadership to take his troops north to unite with other troops. Mao disobeyed. It's a pattern we're beginning to see with Mao. He took his 2,000 troops south and east to the mountains of Jiangxi province. Here he set up what would become the Jiangxi Soviet, with himself as ruler. A year later, Mao was joined by a defecting nationalist military commander called Zhe De. Zhe brought 10,000 soldiers with him, which enabled them to conduct successful military campaigns. And over three years, Mao and Zhe built the Jiangxi Soviet up to be the largest and most successful in China. And in terms of landmass, it was about 50% bigger than Wales, with a similar population to Wales. Here, Mao learnt both the skills of guerrilla warfare and of government. And Mao instituted some very progressive reforms, especially regarding women's rights. A quarter of all elected officials had to be women. Women were educated and given the same rights as men in marriage, i.e. they could divorce their husbands. Voting was open to the proletariat aged 16 and above. The bourgeoisie, merchants, bankers, rich peasants and monks, couldn't vote. But what he's most remembered for, though, is codifying the lack of human rights. Anyone found to disturb the peace would be executed without legal safeguards, and disturb the peace meant opposing Mao. There were indeed many national spies in the Jiangxi Soviet, and Mao instigated a purge to get rid of them. And like all purges, they gather a momentum of their own, and about a third of a million people out of a population of three million, 10%, were killed. So the first time Mao has real political power, he behaves just like the warlords that he so despised. His time running the Jiangxi Soviet gave Mao more practical experience of government than any other Communist Party member. In 1931, the Communist Party leadership, who were in Shanghai, had to escape the nationalists and they joined Mao in his Jiangxi Soviet. It was the safest place for them to be. 
It was at this time that Mao was introduced to 18-year-old He Zhizhen, a bright, passionate communist, well-educated and well-experienced in revolutionary warfare. She had already earned the nickname Two-Gun Girl General. Mao took her on as assistant, but it wasn't long before they fell in love, and they shortly married. This was Mao's third wife, his first, if you remember, died. It was not uncommon for men to have more than one wife. Mao's second wife, Yang Kui Wei, whom he had pretty much ignored since the revolution started, was devastated to hear this news. Yang Kui Wei's grief was short-lived as two years later she was captured by the nationalists and tortured to denounce Mao, which she refused to do, so she was executed. Her Shizhen and Mao had six children together, all dying young, apart from one that was abandoned on the long march. In 1937, 11 years into their marriage, she was injured in battle by some shrapnel, including one piece lodging in her head. She nearly died, but was eventually able to go to Moscow for treatment. While in Moscow, Mao courted his fourth wife, Jiang Qing, and to keep her Shizhen out of the way, Mao had her detained in Moscow in a mental asylum for nine years. It's worth introducing some of the Communist Party leaders that joined Mao in the Jiangxi Soviet. One can easily get the impression from how Mao is memorialised that he single-handedly created the Communist state. Peng Wei was from a poor peasant family. He joined the army at age 16 and remained a military man. He was a supporter of Mao, but also critical of him. His military skills saved Mao's life on more than one occasion. However, Peng's criticism of Mao came to a head in 1959 and Mao had Peng removed from all senior positions. Bernard Gu studied Marxism and Leninism at Shanghai University and was then sent to Moscow to further his revolutionary training. Bernard Gu was General Secretary of the Communist Party. He opposed Mao's views and managed to get Zhou Enlai to replace Mao as the political commander. Bernard Gu is his nickname and what it means is familiar with history. Zhou Enlai came from a family who for generations had provided senior civil servants to the Qing rulers. He went to some of the best schools, studied in Japan, won a scholarship to study in Europe. He was able to travel and see how workers were treated in different countries. He saw the 1921 miners' strike in England. Zhou Enlai was about the only senior politician that managed to stay at the top all through Mao's career and avoided being purged in the Cultural Revolution. We've met Jodeur, Mao's military leader, when he set up the Jiangxi Soviet. In 1934, the Comintern agent was a German, Otto Brunner. Otto trained to be a teacher, but instead he joined the German Communist Party. He was imprisoned by the Weimar Republic, but he managed to escape by a daring jailbreak organised by his Brazilian lover, Olga. Brunner and Olga went to Moscow, where Brunner was trained in the military academy before being sent to China. So we can see that the leadership team that Mao was part of comprised a wealth of experience and knowledge. This was in no way a revolution led by uneducated peasants. And although I'm trying to minimise the number of names I introduce you to, there are two that will play an important part in Mao's career. Zhou Enlai, who was initially superior to Mao, and Lin Biao, who was one of the finest tactical military commanders, both were with Mao in Jiangxi and on the Long March. After four failed attempts to get rid of the communists, in 1933, Chiang Kai-shek mobilised a million soldiers. Many of these soldiers had been trained and advised by German commanders. Their fifth military campaign was much better planned and executed. With a combination of pillboxes and electrified barbed wire, 
the plan was to totally encircle the communists based in Jiangxi and starve the communists. The communists learned of this plan and, against Mao's advice, party leadership, specifically Bogu and Otto Brunn, ordered that the nationalists be engaged in fixed battles. The result was a disaster. They quickly lost half their 130,000 troops. And again, for the second time, it looked likely that the communists would be totally wiped out and they were forced to retreat to a remote mountain base. This led to what has become known as the Long March. In Chinese history, this is a pivotal moment as the Battle of Waterloo is for Britain. Chinese history books present the Long March as an heroic achievement expertly planned and executed by Mao and his team. In reality, it was chaotic and tactical with lots of disagreements. It was, however, the march that made Mao's career. Zhou Enlai was in overall command of the retreat, and initially it was hoped that they would be able to stay local and retake control of the Jiangxi Soviet. Eventually, however, they took a journey of over 5,000 miles and taking just over a year. By design, their route went through the most inhospitable terrain to try and avoid the nationalists. Roughly 70,000 set out and roughly 7,000 arrived, i.e. 9 out of 10 died or deserted. From Mao's viewpoint, one of the key episodes occurred at Zunyi. Zunyi is where the retreating communists held a leadership meeting. Just before arriving in Zunyi, the communists lost 40,000 soldiers in a river crossing that was heavily defended by the nationalists. The meeting's aim was to review their defeats both in Jiangxi and on the retreat and agree their plans. For the last two years, Mao had not been in overall command, so he was largely exempt from blame. Bogu, Otto Brunn and Zhou Enlai had been in charge, and Mao attacked Bogu and Otto Brunn for the inappropriateness of their Russian-informed strategy. Zhou, by apologising for his mistakes and by supporting Mao, managed to keep his position, but Bogu and Otto Brunn were demoted, and Mao was appointed to the Central Committee. So this conference marks the point where Soviet influence declines and Mao's increases. In the 1960s, during the Cultural Revolution, a series of eight posters were produced and widely distributed across China to tell the story of the Long March. They tell a romanticised version of Mao and his Red Army eluding the vastly more numerous and better equipped Nationalist Army. They tell the story of the great trials and hostile landscapes that they had to contend with, the dangerous 24 major river crossings in small boats or across fragile, heavily defended bridges the 18 snow-capped mountain ranges that they crossed, with many dying from the cold, and the deadly Sichuan marshlands, the part of the journey that took the most lives, either through malnutrition or by drowning, or just sheer exhaustion. Mao had many arguments and mutinies with the leaders of the Communist Party during the Long March. Mao eventually won all these arguments, and he used a number of techniques. First, his clinical analysis of whatever the situation was meant his decisions were rational, even if causing tremendous hardship and often death for many. He didn't value human life apart from his own. Second, he was able to manoeuvre people into positions of power where they had to make decisions that went against the positions they had previously helped, so he could later blame them for their mistakes. Third, he was often able to motivate others to criticise leaders that opposed him, thus strengthening his own position. And he had a very clear vision for the kind of society he wanted to create, it was not just power for power's sake. He was able to motivate men to lay down their lives for his vision. The generally accepted end of the Long March is the impoverished, isolated town of Yan'an in the mountainous borders of Shaanxi in northwest China. 
Mao would spend the next 12 years here and it became the de facto capital of communist China during the revolution. Mao spent his time planning on how to expel the Japanese and overthrow the nationalists. Red Army recruitment and training took place here and many successful battles were launched against the Japanese. Mao was not chairman of the Communist Party, but he was the key decision maker. It was whilst in Yan'an that an old Chinese folk song had new lyrics written, and it became the unofficial anthem of the Chinese Communist Party and of Mao himself. The lyrics were about the struggle against Japan. The East is Red was heavily played during the Cultural Revolution, but dropped by Deng Xiaoping after Mao's death. And Mao's portrait was painted on village walls and public buildings all over Red China, and many schools were named after him, with small children chanting, We are all Chairman Mao's good little children. Not surprisingly, the cult of Mao Zedong wasn't appreciated by many of the leading communists, but they knew to keep their thoughts to themselves. As Japan extended their conquest of China, Mao repeatedly reached out to the nationalists to create a party of national unity to defeat the Japanese. His requests were refused. Mao pragmatically argued that differences in political ideologies were irrelevant while foreigners ran the country. Eventually, Mao so persuaded one of Chiang Kai-shek's generals that he orchestrated a coup, and Chiang Kai-shek was forced to put in place an uneasy collaboration. Mao expected Stalin to welcome this united front, but Stalin had been working secretly with Chiang Kai-shek and didn't welcome the communists' interference. Mao would remember how Stalin had double-crossed him. It was during this time in Yan'an that Mao started an indoctrination campaign to educate the many eager young revolutionaries that came to Yan'an. He introduced the concept of Mao Zedong thought. He set up Marxist study groups forcing self-confession of non-Marxist thoughts. Around 10,000 citizens who refused to have their thoughts rectified were killed. Mao thought and spoke in contradictions. He said, Communist Party members must ask why about everything. They certainly must not follow blindly. Yet at the same time, he insisted on the need for uniformity of thought. Submission to central leadership was specifically reaffirmed. At a plenary meeting in 1938, Mao, then 44 years old, made a speech which includes the following famous paragraph and has scary resonances for our time. The more I studied Mao, the more parallels I saw with the Republican Party. This is what he said. Every communist must grasp this truth. Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Our principle is that the party commands the gun, and the gun must never be allowed to command the party. Yet having guns, we can create party organisations. We create schools, create culture, create mass movements. All things grow out of the barrel of a gun. It is only by the power of the gun that the working class and the labouring masses can defeat the armed bourgeoisie and the landlords. In this sense, we may say that only with guns can the whole world be transformed. We are advocates for the abolition of war, but war can only be abolished through war. In order to get rid of the gun, it is necessary to take up the gun. Japan wasn't defeated until the Americans bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. During World War II, the Americans had senior military advisers in Yan'an, seeking to understand the communists. But when the war ended, the Americans sided with Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. The Russians switched all their funding and support to the communists. With the Japanese threat gone, the nationalists and the communists resumed their civil war. The communists made steady progress against the nationalists, and eventually Chiang Kai-shek fled mainland China to set up his nationalist regime in Taiwan. And on the 1st of October 1949, 
56-year-old Mao Zedong was nominated chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, and in Tiananmen Square, Chairman Mao announced to the nation the formation of the People's Republic of China. But Mao's jackets had oversized pockets. As an avid reader, this is something who carried books around with him, especially history books. Mao's premiership started well. His first action was a showdown with Stalin in Moscow. Stalin had repeatedly used China for his own ends and not supported the Chinese Communists. Mao made it clear he wasn't leaving without a new friendship and mutual assistance treaty that treated China as an equal. And Stalin was forced to admit that he'd backed the wrong man. It took Mao six weeks of hanging around in Moscow, but he got his treaty. Mao needed expertise to create a modern economy. He didn't trust the West, so had been forced to turn to Stalin. Stalin provided the expertise to create more than a hundred large-scale Soviet-style heavy industrial plants. There was also the unfinished business with the nationalists who occupied Taiwan, and Mao wanted them out. However, less than a year into Mao's premiership, Stalin got his revenge. Kim Il-sung, leader of the communist North Korea, wanted to reunite recently divided Korea. Kim got Stalin's agreement for the invasion, but Wiley Stalin told Kim that he must also get Mao's agreement, and secondly, if Kim ran into trouble, the Soviet Union wouldn't come to his aid. He basically stitched Mao up. Kim had supported Mao with 100,000 soldiers during the Chinese Civil War, so Mao couldn't really refuse. When, after four months of war, Kim's army did indeed get into trouble, and when the American counteroffensive crossed the 38th parallel into North Korea, Mao could either let the Americans take over all of Korea or come to Kim's aid. He chose to support Kim. Over a million Chinese soldiers fought in the war, and around 180,000 died. One of the dead was An Ying, Mao's eldest son, and the only person Mao had anything like an emotional relationship with. Mao's youngest brother, Zi Tan, had died fighting the nationalists, and his second brother, Zi Min, had been tortured and strangled to death by a warlord. A side effect of the war was that Mao did not now have the military resource to retake Taiwan with his military backing from the USA. And the nationalists also saw an opportunity to try and regain mainland China. They had already murdered 3,000 tax officials to try and prevent the communists raising money. Mao called for another purge. 700,000 were executed or driven to suicide, and at least 1.5 million people disappeared in reform through labour camps. Mao oversaw the details of these operations. He set a quota of 0.1% of the population for being purged. Landlords were a priority. Mao, as was his way, got the peasants to do the killings. A climate of pervasive terror developed. The bourgeoisie and the intellectuals were specifically targeted to cleanse the country of wrong thinking. Mao usually spoke ambiguously. His leadership team always tried to second-guess what he really meant, and getting it wrong could be the end of your career or your life. For example, Mao hinted that he would like to leave the day-to-day -day running of the country to a deputy, whilst he thought strategically and took the role of wise chairman. An aspiring communist leader called Go Gang positioned himself to take this role. He lobbied for support. But Mao saw this as a conspiracy to overthrow him, and had Gao so humiliated that he committed suicide. Any official who had any intelligence could now see saying anything other than total agreement with Mao would prove fatal. This meant Mao was now unable to implement any moderate policy. 
If Mao said collectivism was the way forward, the chain of command would go into overdrive to please. The rich would be forced to share what they had with the poor until no one had any money. If Mao said entrepreneurship was the way forward, before long some peasants would be hiring labour, buying land and lending money, i.e. becoming capitalists. Mao's policies lurched from one extreme to the other. But Mao was always told everything was going very well. Khrushchev, after he came to power, said in a secret speech in the Soviet Party Congress in 1956 that Stalin had been a brutal psychopath, animated by a persecution mania of unbelievable dimensions, whose personality cult had concealed a capricious, despotic rule, and whose sickly suspicion and mistrust had sent millions of innocent men and women to cruel and unnecessary deaths. Khrushchev also wanted to live in cooperation with the West not to overthrow the West. Mao failed to see any parallels between Stalin and his own behaviour. Instead, he was disgusted to hear Khrushchev's thoughts and thought Khrushchev was no longer a true communist. Uprisings in the same year in Poland and Hungary to overthrow Soviet rule further shocked Mao. It reinforced his view that he was right to purge counter-revolutionaries. Mao felt the time was now right to accelerate China's industrialization. To do this, he needed skilled people to unleash the creativity of the Chinese. He needed intellectuals, those same intellectuals that he had repeatedly purged. So he went on a charm offensive. Mao taught the country, telling everyone it was now safe to express their views, ideas, and yes, even criticism was welcomed. It took a year of selling because no one believed him. He encouraged people to read counter-revolutionary writings so they could see the erroneous thinking. I think he genuinely believed most people would see capitalism as wrong thinking. Eventually, gradually, people did start to express their views, and with the tide turning, Mao formally launched the cultural change programme, Let a Hundred Flowers Bloom, Let a Hundred Scores of Thought Contend. The floodgates opened. A one-party state was not what the people wanted, and they said so. Six weeks after launch, Mao was forced to change his mind. He told officials the opposite of what he'd been saying for a year. Criticism was only acceptable if it strengthened the Communist Party, not weakened it. Peter Stone argues that the crackdown that Mao then instigated was not part of a master plan. Mao thought he had already purged wrong thinking and was genuinely surprised at the level of criticism. This time Mao was lenient, I use that word relatively. He didn't cause the death of many, but sent around half a million to labour reform camps in the countryside. The effect on the Chinese intellectuals that they never trusted the Communist Party again. Unlike when Mao was a revolutionary and had daily contact with the people, now he lived an isolated existence in what was the Library of the Qing Emperors in the Royal Palace in Beijing. He was out of touch and had purged all links with reality. In 1958, the Soviets launched the first Sputnik, and Khrushchev announced plans for the Soviet Union to overtake the USA in the production of iron, steel, coal and electric power, all within 15 years. Mao rose to the challenge and said China would overtake Britain in the production of these items in the same timescales. He went on a tour of China to determine how they would double their already unrealistically high targets. No one he met told him the truth. Everyone said his vision was achievable, so he launched his plan for making China a global player, the great leap forward. He told the Politburo, we must believe, yet also disbelieve, the scientists. 
Whenever a problem is discussed, we must also discuss ideology. When we study a problem, we must subdue the facts by adopting a political viewpoint. How can anything be resolved when only numbers are discussed without politics? In other words, Mao says, ignore the facts, political dogma must prevail. Mao managed to paint an enticing vision of what China would be like in just a few years. The wonderful communes where everyone was happy and well fed, where backyard furnaces produced iron and steel across China, where babies were cared for in nurseries and old people cared for in homes, and everyone was protected by a local militia. Collectivisation was at the heart of the great leap forward. Family units were forcibly broken down and people lived in community groups with minimum personal possessions and no need for money. You worked or skived for the common good. Regional officials, of course, falsified their production figures. Food production plummeted and there was widespread famine. It is estimated that 7 million people died of famine due to Mao's great leap forward. This is, of course, an horrendous number. As a percentage of China's population, however, it was less than 1%. By contrast, in the mid-19th century, in another man-made famine, 12% of the Irish population died. Mao lost face, and he retired from the chairmanship of the People's Republic of China, but kept his chairmanship of the Communist Party. It was left to Li Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping to reverse Mao's policy and start the recovery. For the next six years, until 1966, Mao took a back seat in the running of China, and China recovered. That should have been the end of Mao. It was not. In 1964, Brezhnev forced Khrushchev to retire, which he did peacefully, acknowledging his own frailty. In the latter years of his premiership, he had sidelined many in the party and made key decisions on his own, which made him unpopular. His main area of interest was agriculture, and he had failed to improve agricultural production as he had promised. Mao and Khrushchev were practically the same age, and Mao could see the parallels to his own situation. But rather than learning the lesson and retire, Mao was energised to regain control of the country. He thought that the Russian communists had become an elite that looked after their own interests, not the workers' interests, and feared the same was happening in China. What he needed was another revolution to replace the old guard with the younger generation. To create a change in mindset, anything associated with China's past the older generation, had to be vilified and the younger than you praised. Thus he launched the cultural revolution. It would get him back in power and purge the bourgeoisie. And choosing to use students as his weapon was a masterstroke of political insight. In the now highly politicised Chinese state education system, students were taught to revere, to love, to worship Chairman Mao. The cultural revolution was launched on the 17th of August 1966 Teenagers and students from all the big cities with their little red books were invited to Tiananmen Square to see their beloved Chairman Mao and to be whipped into a frenzy by Mao's newly appointed deputy, Lin Biao. Lin was appointed because he hadn't criticised Mao and acquiesced to all Mao's plans. Mao did not speak at rally, leaving this to Lin Biao, another well-used Mao technique, so if necessary he could distance himself from any fallout. These schoolchildren and students were known as Red Guards, and since the square could only hold 100,000, in all 10 rallies were held so a million red guards could be energised. They were told to get rid of the four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs and old habits. Unsure of how far they could take their revolution, the red guards started tentatively, gently criticising their elders, their parents or teachers. 
but it soon escalated. About 5,000 historic sites were destroyed. But what is so scary is how the personality culture around one man was able to make a whole generation be willing to die and to kill for no benefit for themselves, and die and kill they did. During August and September, around 2,000 people of authority in Beijing alone were killed by beating, whipping, strangling, trampling and beheading. Many more were so humiliated that they committed suicide. Of course, there are laws that should prevent such righteous behaviour, but to emphasise that Mao knew precisely what was happening, he issued a central directive preventing the police from suppressing lawlessness. In the communist mindset, the police and the law were there to support the communist party, not to maintain law and order. Many Westerners, and indeed Chinese today, believe nothing has changed. Official posters glorifying the cultural revolution leave no doubt as to the level of violence expected and encouraged. Mao put his wife, Jian Qing, in charge of the cultural aspects of what was allowed during the Cultural Revolution. She was autocratic and imposed her own view on the 900 million Chinese. No reference to Chinese historic stories or poems were allowed. No foreign music was allowed. Every piece of art had to extol the virtues of the Communist Party and the evilness of anything that opposed the party. To ensure the public were clear, all characters had to be black or white. No grey or ambiguous characters allowed. The closest analogy to modern times I can think of is Trump's 1766 commission and DeSantis's book bans and language bans in Florida's libraries, schools and universities. Some of the policies of the Republic of America are scarily close to Mao's cultural revolution. Back to China. Eight new stories were selected and these form the basis for every permitted book, play, opera, film, ballet or radio play. Jian vetted each one of these and would frequently attend rehearsals, overriding the director if she felt that the characters were not heroic enough or evil enough. One of the eight was enticingly titled, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. The public, of course, got thoroughly fed up with just having these eight permitted stories. However, Janet Chin herself was a romantic and loved Greta Garbo, so she would hold private viewings of her films for herself and her friends. Near the end of Mao's life, Jiang Qing tried to position herself as Mao's replacement and saw herself as an empress. She led what Mao called the Gang of Four, and Mao, within the Communist Party, was openly hostile towards Jiang. Mao even feared the leadership of the army were no longer loyal, so he engineered for the Red Guards to gain access to military weapons, including tanks and ships. In 1967-68, China came close to another armed civil war. Once Mao had got the established Communist Party and army leaders expelled or punished, he called for an end to the armed revolution and admonished those that continued to use arms. To dispel the power of the Red Guards, they were dispersed to the countryside, both to prevent further violence and for re-education into the value of labour. In 1969, Mao put back in place the various committees of government within the Communist Party that he had suspended during the Cultural Revolution and at the 9th Congress of the Communist Party he was formally acknowledged as both Chairman of the Communist Party and the People's Republic of China. At the cost of huge disruption, loss of hundreds of thousands of lives and a hardening of anti-Communist Party feelings in the country, Mao had achieved his objective. He was now back in command. It's scary how some people, through force of personality, are able to inflict huge damage on the country just for personal ambition. 
Also at the Ninth National Congress, Lin Biao was against his wishes appointed as Mao's deputy, and his role as Mao's successor was written into the Constitution. Lin's appointment and a possible war with Russia made the army a powerful faction within the Communist Party. Lin privately wasn't happy with the Cultural Revolution and feared that he might in the future be purged. His mantra to survive was, take no responsibility, make no suggestions, do no crime. Two years later, in 1971, a mysterious incident occurred. The official version is Lin Biao's family and staff attempting to flee to Moscow, but their plane crashed whilst attempting to land in Mongolia, and all were killed. Lin Biao was branded by the party as a traitor. But this doesn't make sense. Lin was the most trusted member of Mao's team, and as Mao was now old and weak, Lin would shortly be premier. Mao's positioning of Lin as a traitor as he had done to so many of his loyal supporters during the Cultural Revolution, caused not just party members, but also the public, to question Mao's competence. Zhou Enlai died of bladder cancer in 1976, a few months before Mao. Despite Zhou having given a lifetime of support to Mao, Mao never liked him. Mao denied Zhou medical intervention for the cancer and refused to attend his funeral. Sharon and I had done much to moderate Mao's policies and just before his death had been reversing the effects of the Cultural Revolution. Extensive public mourning of Sharon and I's death annoyed Mao and he tried unsuccessfully to forbid it. The mourning far exceeded the public response to Mao's own death, which was marked more by relief than by anything else. There was just one last contradiction that Mao played out before dying, rapprochement with the USA. A border conflict between China, the Xinjiang region and the Soviet Union led President Nixon to repeatedly reach out to Mao to suggest improving relations. As a goodwill gesture, Nixon proactively withdrew the two American destroyers that were patrolling the Taiwan Straits. However, whilst the Communist Party's response was mentally positive, they were so bleak and the Americans' understanding of Chinese diplomacy so immature that the Americans failed to read the signs. In frustration, Mao made a sign he thought that even the Americans couldn't miss. He invited to China the American table tennis team, then playing in the World Championships, along with China, in Tokyo. This unlocked the door for Kissinger to visit, first in secret and publicly. The USA and China agreed a common communique. The USA agreed that Taiwan was part of China and that it was up to the Chinese to resolve their dispute and the UN replaced Taiwan's membership with that of the People's Republic of China. By the time Nixon visited Mao in the Forbidden City, Mao was bedridden. He'd had bouts of unconsciousness, his throat had swollen, and he could hardly speak, and his body was bloated due to a build-up of fluids. In the week before Nixon arrived, nurses helped Mao to stand and walk a little. Kissinger described the meeting. In Mao's study, manuscripts lined bookshelves along every wall, Books covered the table and the floor. It looked more like the retreat of a scholar than the audience room of the all-powerful leader of the world's most populous nation. There was no ceremony. Mao just stood there. I have met no one, with the possible exception of Charles de Gaulle, who so distilled raw, concentrated willpower. He was planted there with a female attendant close by to help steady him. He dominated the room, not by the pomp, that in most states confers a degree of majesty on the leaders, but by exuding, in almost tangible form, the overwhelming drive to prevail.
This meeting was, was totally unbelievable. For years, Mao had railed against the capitalist and imperialistic USA. For years, he had espoused the Marxist Leninist vision of a world communist state. And now, the fear of war with Russia had propelled China from being an isolationist state to a partner on the world stage with a seat at the UN. And it set the tone for East-West relationships for the rest of the 20th century. And more tangible agreements would likely have quickly followed had Nixon not been embroiled in Watergate. Mao rationalised this turn of events by repeating his mantra that all progress is made by contradictions. Mao's remaining few years were spent trying to appoint a successor who would be true to Mao's principles. He failed. Mao always feared that Deng Xiaoping was a closet capitalist, and so it turned out. So, some closing remarks. Chen Yun, who worked with Mao ever since the Long March Day, summarised Mao's legacies as follows. Had Mao died in 1956, his achievements would have been immortal. Had he died in 1966, he would have still been a great man. But he died in 1976. Alas, what can one say? Mao took China from the impoverished state colony to a world power, and he made the one-party state unchallengeable. Mao also caused the deaths of more people than any other leader in world history. Mao passionately believed that the workers would only have a good standard of living if there was no middle class. He has been proved wrong. In a generation, 850 million people in China have been lifted out of poverty. Conventional Western and de Marxist thinking is that a wealthy middle class leads to democracy. This wisdom has been proved wrong for now. The brutal put-down of the Tiananmen Square protesters on June the 4th, 1989 by Deng Xiaoping, which resulted in hundreds or perhaps thousands of deaths, was seen in the West as a tragedy greater than the loss of life, for it marked the end of any belief that China was on the road to a liberal democracy. In China, it was seen as a small price to pay for making China great again. Philip Shaw writes, Stalin cared about what subjects did or might do. Hitler about who they were, Mao cared about what they thought. And a final remark of relevance of Mao today. Junior Lovell won the Kundal History Prize in 2019 for a book on Maoism. She's a professor of modern China at Burbank College. I've only read the introduction of this book, and she argues that ever since the Cold War, the West has focused on Russian communism, but that Maoism has had and will continue to have a much more significant impact on world history. She gives examples of how, ever since the Second World War, Maoism has inspired revolution throughout the world, sometimes just by example, sometimes with funding and training from China. She cites the Malayan Communist Party's insurgency after World War II. Britain saw this as inspired by anti-colonial sentiment. America saw this as part of the domino effect of communism taking over the world, one country at a time. The Korean War in the 1950s, which China took a major military role in, reinforced the fear of the domino effect. And in the 60s and 70s, Mao posters, badges and little red books appeared across the campuses in France, Germany and Italy. The urban terrorism of Germany's Red Army faction and the Red Brigades in Italy were inspired by Maoism. The Shining Path Communist uprising in Peru, the Communist Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the Zimbabwean African National Liberation Army were all facilitated by their leaders attending revolutionary training in China. 
and in 2006, India declared that the Mao-worshipping Naxalite guerrillas were the biggest internal security threat to the Indian state. In China today, there are not infrequent outbursts of singing Maoist hymns, such as, without the Communist Party, there would be no new China, and heaven and earth are small compared with the party's benevolence. And the Communist Party are using the Chinese version of Twitter to bombard citizens with Mao quotations. And Xi Jinping has reintroduced Mao-style public criticism and self-criticism, as well as purges of those that might not support the party. In 2024, Chinese communism would have lasted longer than the Soviet Union. Julia's message is, the world ignores Maoism at its peril. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.